0: Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm
1: Jenny Ji-Jong, a culture writer and critic. This week we are discussing The Dig and Wolfwalkers, two very different films about the image of the past, whether it's mythological or historical. So before we get into that, love that, love a rhyme. <laughs> um, how have you been this week? How's my favorite podcast host doing? Oh, thank you very much. Likewise. We are each other's <laughs> mutual favorites.
0: Doing okay. I was just thinking like, literally nothing happened this week. Um, yeah. But I suppose it's not really true elsewhere in the
1: world. You just reminded me that a, a thing with the stocks happened. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm willfully not reading it because <laughs> it's the same thing that we were saying last week. Like people just didn't know when to stop with it. So now I'm just exhausted, and I'm also exhausted about the people that talk about the exhaustion, (laughs) so I don't even know what to do
0: with it. There's Um, no proper way to express any sort of feeling about it anymore. No,
1: no, I've just been sitting here watching my stupid little shows, making no money from any kind of trading. And just keeping it going. But I was going to ask you, actually, because, you know, Reddit, you've been a big Reddit head since day one, right? And now it's getting some shine. <laughs> how do you feel about it? How do you feel about the fact that people are getting on this Reddit hype now? Well, I think people, more people should realize that Reddit is a vast,
0: like, website with a vast user base. And so it's mm. not all, like, how do how does, like, Wall Street, the, the subreddit Wall Street describe itself? Like, 4chan meets Blo- Bloomberg Terminal? It, it's not all that
1: no um, it really isn't
0: no really, really i'm isn't. in a lot of like dog and cat video subreddits mm, like yeah am i is. the asshole is a classic that i think oh i'm kind of addicted to now i read it almost someone day. needs to make an am i the
1: asshole film oh and just like you know how people are like getting conceptual things and turning them so there needs to be like a plot you know bitch, definitely let me, me not fucking say this shit yeah. on record and let me just go, go to the stew and yeah start they're, writing myself. they are
0: definite, they're definitely ones that could be content fodder and some mm-hmm. of them almost certainly were designed to be. Like yeah. a lot of these things aren't real. No. Um they're people who deliberately just want to troll around and sometimes they do it very successfully. But Yeah. Yeah. I'm I like Reddit. I use Reddit a lot. Um it's really helpful also if you have like a question like what is the best backpack I should buy? But you don't want to like look at wire cutter or whatever. You just like yeah. Just Google this shit, attach, like, a Reddit to that at the end of your search, yeah. and it'll bring up all of these results, and I find generally they're pretty reliable, so,
1: I, yeah, I'm pro yes, Reddit. Sh- absolutely. Shout out to all my skincare addiction girls <laughs> out there. <laughs> the- that's the only thread that I, like, regularly read, other than Am I the Asshole. Um, I should start, like, I should sign up i haven't even signed up i'm one of those like idiots that's like just viewing chrome you know um but i (laughs) guess i guess after this week i'll i'll look into it and divest away from twitter and onto reddit
0: yeah we need to diversify our portfolios of you know social media engagement
1: exactly exactly so there you go um (laughs) other other than stocks um anything new with you no dude like i'm probably just gonna keep watching my tv shows i i I'm half, I guess we're halfway through WandaVision. I'm really enjoying it. So we might talk about it later. But at the same time, I I don't know if I'm qualified to because I literally, I'm just there for the vibes. Um. It's great vibes it's giving me like extremely mandalorian energy where it's like Ooh. oh i love being in this world and i don't and i'm not invested in anything or anyone really i'm just like oh this is such a high production value yeah <laughs>
0: like- you know i just finished uh the mandalorian maybe a week and a half ago oh do you love it Well, by the end of it, yeah, I'm like a full convert and baby Yoda? So cute. That's possibly the cutest creation.
1: Never in the history of
0: humanity. In the meantime, what did you watch this week, Valen?
1: Yeah. So because like there hasn't really been. TV that has excited me or like enough episodes have passed that I feel like I can talk about it. I'm still on the film wave. Same. If you, in case you guys haven't noticed. So I watched The Dig and it's on Netflix. It's a film that's directed by Simon Stone that's generally a newcomer in terms of like being a famous director. It's also written by Moira Buffini and it's based on the novel by the same name uh, written by John Preston. So it's set in 1939. It's about the true story of an excavation from a 7th century medieval burial ship on an Anglo uh, like the burial of an Anglo-Saxon warrior and it's in Sutton Hoo which is in Suffolk, not too far from London, for all my geography nerds that needed to know where that is. And it's about the the film it's the film and the book and i guess this is all true so it's about a self-taught excavator called Basil Brown and that's and this guy's played by Ray Fines and a wealthy widow called Edith Pretty, played by Carrie Mulligan. It also stars Lily James as Peggy Piggott, and I promise this is not a Sesame Street ripoff. These names,
0: oh my god. These
1: names are ridiculous. (laughs) They are also real people, so I can't even be mad at the writer. And for all my lovesick fans, it's got Johnny Flynn in here, who plays Edith Pretty's cousin, Rory. So it's set in 1939. It's on the eve of World War, so the UK basically went to war with Germany. And that's kind of looming in the background as this excavation is happening. But the story itself is primarily about like the, I guess, friendship or the understanding or the respect between Basil Brown and Edith Pretty. They're both very passionate about archaeology. They're both self-taught, I think. She doesn't do any digging, but obviously she dropped out of university, got married or whatever. So anyway... You watched this upon my recommendation, Jenny. What did you think about it? I thought it was a really
0: relaxing movie to just, like, everything from the the scenery, the cinematography, the music, um, which is very sort of, you know, the the kind of uh, early 20th century, like, Downton Abbey kind of feel. This countryside, the, the, the colors, the palettes, the the gentle interactions between people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a really soothing
1: film to watch, and I, I like the vibes of it a lot. Yeah. I also have already mentioned that I loved it. I didn't expect to love it, because there are a lot of period piece films about true stories, you know, about something like historical that happened that usually bore me, because they kind of follow the same format.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: the way that this film was directed, and the way that it was written, really took me aback. I really didn't expect to be so touched by it in terms of emotionally, in terms of like existentially, to be honest. So it's shot in a kind of dreamlike way where mm-hmm. the visuals appear out of sync with the audio of whoever oh, is yeah. talking. And by doing that, it really calls back into the themes that it's trying to explore as a film, of which there are many, and of which they're very abstract, actually. So I, I found it pretty surprising that it kind of tackled those abstract themes um as well as it did because it's really hard to you know it's uh, i don't know anything about archaeology and oh you weren't an archaeology head like so many people i was know. not an archaeology head no not really into archaeology films either in like hollywood type archeology like not a big indiana jones fan not really into the tomb raider <laughs> None of the mummy films. Like, gotta, gotta go like, back to the childhood,
0: like, classic books. Um, yeah, I know. That's yeah. where the obsession yeah. starts as a childhood archaeology slash,
1: like, you, in- you're, you're a fan.
0: Yeah. Well, it's the kind of thing where, you know, when you're young and you start reading these books about, you know, ancient Egypt and then King Arthur mm. and ancient Greek. So it's like, the, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. tied in with being an, an ancient mythology folklore head, which I, Definitely was See, an am so all part of the same. Yeah, thing.
1: that's that's the path that you went down <laughs> as a kid. I went down. I went down the psychopathic path. Oh, okay. Of, uh, reading Goosebumps and Stephen King. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Far, the far, far of, like, away from me. Seven onwards, yeah, like just at, like completely traumatizing myself for absolutely no reason. These are the two genders. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I I love archaeology and like, oh, I go to the British Museum, I see a bunch of shit that was stolen by these white people, and I'm like, cool, that's so cool, and then like I leave. But this was really... As someone that is predestined for being really into nostalgia and melancholy, you'd think that I would have already been really into this type of stuff. But this, I guess, jostled me in a way Mm -hmm. that was just like, this is extremely your shit because it's about human existentialism, which, again, totally abstract. Didn't realize that they would even like get into this, but the way that they use Basil Brown and Edith Pretty as the two main kind of tentpole characters that lead this story, these two people are really passionate about something that it's about that the wonder of discovery and then it's the wonder of human history, like dating back thousands and thousands of years, you know, it kind of calls into questioning of human existence right now and how irrelevant and small and little it feels. Obviously, there's a war that's about to happen, which is like, on the cusp of another historical event, right, that Mm -hmm. will destroy and that will bury. And then Edith Pretty's character, spoiler alert, she has a heart disease that's not going to get any better. So she's dealing with her own mortality. And then you've got Basil Brown's character that's, you know, (laughs) having to deal with the fact that he is not respected in this field just because of his class, which is, you know, classic UK (laughs) problems. And it's just interesting seeing the characters grapple with this history that they are discovering in real time with their hands. It's tangible. It's tangible history that they're holding. Uh, While all the while they're living in a world where historical things are also happening. And it just, it felt, you said soothing. And I, and I really, really agree with that because we are now right now, apparently living through a very historical time. Um <laughs> And it certainly doesn't feel like it when we're cooped up in our houses. And I know that like, hopefully in 10 years time, when, this is merely just something that we can call back to. We can, we can talk about it not even fondly, but we can actually like retell this history ourselves. And the way that it's shot, the way that the audio goes over a misplaced time, it really did feel like a dream that someone was retelling or a memory that someone was retelling. And I just really appreciated that because that's kind of how history and that's how information and is passed down. It was just, I don't know. It just felt really gracefully done and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So, um, in terms of critics, there's one in Vulture by Bilge Ebiri, my Turkish uncle. He, um, he wrote a, a review that was pretty similar to kind of how I felt about it. Read that review if, if you will link it into the we'll Substack. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, speaking of, like, the criticism or critic reaction, I wanted to bring up with you, or, like, have a brief discussion, I guess, about one particular aspect that Joe Livingston wrote for The New Republic. Um, in case you're not familiar, they're sort of the resident culture critic, and they do a lot with film and TV um, and books and culture at large. Mm-hmm. So they had a piece about The Dig and Ammonite, and kind of th- the headline- summary is like how they fetishize Britishness which Mm. I haven't seen Ammonite uh, but it's a strong statement I also have not
1: seen Ammonite no
0: but so I don't know like a lot of what they're they're writing about because obviously I haven't seen Ammonite I don't have a lot of this context but I found I I found one part kind of compelling where they pointed Mm. out like for the dig it is kind of echoing or at least maybe unintentionally romanticizing or hearkening to this sort of thinking of quote-unquote Imaginary myth of ethnic purity for whites in search of one. And I thought that was interesting because hmm. maybe I had the, I didn't think of it exactly in terms of this way, but while watching it, the grandeur of it, it is definitely part hmm. of the film. And it's, I think it's awe inspiring and really breathtaking yeah. at the same time. But also it is yeah. like very much kind of like our, you know, glorious origins or our, yeah. you know, wonderfully sophisticated and cultured and and rich and just like almost magical mythological past, which I think is like the point. Like that is sort of how this was received. Like you said this is a huge discovery in like u k. history and European history in general. Like this is basically the the biggest sort of find of this nature and its scale and just like any kind of similar sort, like in probably most of modern history. But yeah, I I don't know. I'm curious, like, what you think of this thought or this thesis that, you know, this is, again, like a quote-unquote kind of imaginary myth of ethnic purity for whites in search of one, whether like the the glory and and grandeur that are sort of invoked in this film and like in this real life events, whether that in this particular moment, like in time now when this movie is being made, it's like, Mm -hmm. it is we're at this weird point where a lot of, you know, ethnic. Groups. Yeah. And especially like, you know, white groups, groups of white nationalists, uh, both here and in the UK and Europe. There's so many like invocations of the past is like, we have to go back to this better, uh, more glorious period.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think that's a reach in relation to this film. And the reason why I think that is because context is everything, which I'm sure Joe Livingston knows. You know, we don't know why white nationalists now find meaning in things that they have no business finding meaning in. With this excavation, you know, it comes around halfway through the film, maybe a little bit over halfway. The discovery of a coin is kind of the thing that really gets everybody excited because then they realize that, like, oh, they have their own currency. They have their own money. They, ha- they were a society just as advanced as the Vikings um, or the Romans. And that is exciting. It's exciting when you find out that there was a whole way of life before the point in which you thought it began. And I, I personally don't think that that means that by having pride in that, that then that in turn you are, I don't know, celebrating white purity or white nationalism. I think if white people just minded their business, we would as a world be so much better off. But I, I, I think in terms of like, Celebrating this Britain past, I, not even a reach, but it's more like we are pulling in things that are maybe contextually correct for right now, but not so much for the moment in time that yeah, it is set. I mean, I what don't do you think, think it was commenting so
0: much on the real life historical event as it happened in like the 1930s, mm-hmm. because obviously that it objectively did happen and it happened in this yeah. manner and it did have this historical significance. I I saw this sort of critique as more of a, you know, culture critique about what is going, you know, coming out with these depictions and portrayals of this sort of historical event at this point in time. Because, like, on the one hand, this was based on a novel. I don't know when that novel came out. Um, maybe this movie yeah. was in the works for ages. Um, but it is, like, maybe particularly striking at this point in time, coupled with, you know, our current contextual history as well as, mm. like, these other mm-hmm. films that are coming out around the same yeah. kind of subject, or at least, like, you know, British past, something like that. I find that more, like, compelling as sort of a... <sighs> yeah, like, why was this film made now? Yeah, or even, like, like not, you know, oh, this film shouldn't have been made now, but, like, you know, what does the fact that we are seeing these kind of films come out at this particular point in time around this similar yeah. sort of theme, or at least, like, invocation of a, some past sort of history... Like what does that mean about right now? I yeah. think there I mean the thing with culture yeah. criticism is you can basically like think any bit of it is like bullshit and a lot of, a lot of it yeah, is bullshit. Sure. But then if a lot of it is like interesting and, you know, maybe raises some observations or, or ways of thinking that well, we haven't thought about before, but So that's how I kind of read this one, rather than, like...
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I do, like, I agree with you, like, because you're trying to look for a pattern sometimes when there isn't one. Yeah.
0: That's, like, I mean, dude, I have so many people, writers out of jobs, if that,
1: we were not allowed to bullshit that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think, I think for me, like, obviously, I think the question is not necessarily, does this celebrate the British Empire? It's more about, like, why... Do period piece dramas that are set in Europe keep happening? That's the question. And you know, let me know when you find out the answer because would love to know. But I don't, I don't think this is like this question. Definitely. If you were watching Dunkirk, like this was my critique of Dunkirk oh. because it certainly does celebrate. This. I did not watch Dunkirk, but I believe yeah, Don't watch... I mean, it's... You know, you know, Christopher Nolan, he's in his fucking bag. He knows what he's doing as, as a director. But, like, with regards to, like, the themes, it's definitely, like, a fucking Tory circle jerk. Um, I just think... I ju- it's funny that, like, like, me and Joe Livingston, we took such different things from it. Because, to me, it was like, it's perfect that this film was made for right now because the way that it's shot, the themes that it's talking about is like trying to crystallize a memory in real time Mm -hmm. for these people as they're watching it because they understand the weight of history as they excavate this thing. And we right now as viewers, we understand history as we're stuck in our houses trying to make sure that we don't kill anyone else in the middle of a fucking historical pandemic. Especially like, you know, in in the peak part of the pandemic, when I was just like writing in my journal, like, I don't even know, like, do I write a diary entry for like 50 years from now, 100 years from now, so people can read this account? Oh, dude,
0: I gave up journaling this entire... Since last March, and I kind of regret it. But, yeah, I can see that sort of resonance in this as well. That's the beauty of
1: cultural criticism. Anyone that's can think the beauty of it um, love to chat, yeah. um, I do think I haven't seen Ammonite but I thought Ammonite was just like, not even a response but like on a production level if a script is sold and it's you know the dailies are coming back and they look fantastic for the most part another studio is going to look into a film with the similar themes which is why Portrait of a Lady on Fire yeah. and I it happened yeah. so closely together that's got enough i don't know like, that to me is like that's the pattern there like maybe we just have a chat with with studios about stop making the same film over and over again but that's never going to stop yeah. because people keep seeing it i i it's on it's honestly i think in terms of like quality it's it's in a much higher higher spot in, yeah in it's, what i thought it was gonna
0: be pretty good quality especially for you know we we're expecting a bunch of shit netflix films yeah this is not this is not a th- mid not netflix it's not film. a shit netflix yeah. film um yeah. i think it's i'm glad i watched it i'll say like i my main complaint is that i Fucking hated the romance subplot, which is not historical either. Like, no. nothing matters, <laughs> but that wasn't part of the real events. And I thought it was very shoehorned and took away from yeah the the sort of significance of uh, Carrie Mulligan's character in her storyline. I line. agree.
1: I agree. I mean, I understand why, because it was like seizing the day or like making your own story. And I get all yeah. of that. It didn't need it. That's the thing. Like, no. Carrie Mulligan and Rafe are such strong actors by themselves. The both of them are so good at just tender performances. And we're more on Karen Mm -hmm. Mulligan later, by the way. But um, did you know that Edith Pretty was meant to be played originally by Nicole Kidman and she dropped out and Karen Mulligan took her spot? How do you feel about that? They have such different energies. I know. Like, Nicole
0: Kidman is is a queen, but she's just, she's an ice queen. Yeah. Um, That sort of, like, beautiful distant reserve and... And Carrie Mulligan, the way that she plays Edith Pretty in this is like, she holds her cards close, but she she has a sort of like quiet, tender dignity that is very different from what I would imagine Nicole Kidman
1: would play as. I mean, I I still think it would have been a good film and I I think Nicole would have been great, but there's like an authenticity about Carrie Mulligan playing this because she's British herself. Yeah. So it just, it just fit. And so, you know, obviously, so is Rafe Fines. Like, Rafe Fines has been playing, like, very handsome, buttoned up, upper class types, like, dickhead types for so much of his career. Um, but, like, when he, when he pulls out, you know, th- this kind of performance, it's like, oh yeah, the range, like, he's got it. He can play, like, <laughs> a country folk from Suffolk any day. I didn't learn until recently
0: that Rafe is related to, to Joseph. Oh yeah. I, Wow, what a family!
1: You didn't know they have no, the same bone structure. I, kn- I thought the
0: name was incidental. I was like, oh, maybe a you know British thing, common British surname, or yeah, whatever. <laughs> is pretty common. Yeah, um, I didn't really fit together the the bone structure that much. Um, yeah, man, they have the same head shape. Okay, now that you mention it, the head shape <laughs> is
1: similar. Um, anyway, that's my. I have nothing else to contribute, so that was my. Yeah, you found out shortly before we started recording that Rafe was pronounced Rafe. So, i fine. I'm an Don't dumbass worry. American. I thought this dude was was Ralph Fiennes. Wow, <laughs> that's his name from here on out. It's Ralph Fiennes. <laughs> um, <laughs> please watch this film. Let me know what you think of it. I am a sad girl, so I love anything about mortality and existentialism. So this really like just it really hit me in the feels. All right, so that's enough from Ralph Fiennes and Carrie Mulligan. (laughs) (laughs) What did you watch this week, Jenny?
0: Um, So I watch, funnily enough, in the same sort of like British Isles sphere. Um, I watch this film called Wolfwalkers on Apple TV+.
1: First of all, it's set in Ireland. How dare you? British Isles! (laughs) No, no, no. Don't do that to our Irish fans. Don't do that to our Irish fans. It's Kilkenny. It's Ireland as fuck. Yeah. So this is like a very Irish, that's important because
0: this is a very Irish film. It's an animated film, which may or may not, you know, be up your alley. Um, Mm -hmm. It's directed by uh, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart and animated by Cartoon Saloon, set in Ireland in 1650. So this town, Kilkenny, is under English rule at the time. It's at war with a wolf pack who's living in the forest that they're trying to sort of deforest for farmland. Mm -hmm. Um, and the main story is that this English hunter is, you know, summoned to kill the wolves, and he brings his young daughter with him. But the daughter discovers that the wolf's leader is another young girl who is apparently a wolf walker, which is kind of like a werewolf in that, you know, you basically can, like, become a wolf, embody a wolf. And then it's this whole deal where the two girls become friends and then they have to, you know, figure out how to save the forest and the wolves and go up against the symbol of English authority, the Lord Protector, Oliver, Oliver Cromwell. It's a very sort of complicated sounding storyline, but it's quite simple because this is a children's movie. So mm. you're going to be familiar with like every single narrative beat as it w- works through it. Yeah. Yeah. So I first, you know, started paying attention and, and added this to my watch list because this film which came out in like fall winter 2020 it got a lot of acclaim like critical acclaim and now there's some buzz about whether or not it can go up against the pixar movie soul for the best animated film in the oscars so that's how i kind of became aware of it um and i made palin watch it although she is not a (laughs) an animation or a children's film fan especially am i getting that
1: right yeah Unfortunately, I find it hard to get into kids movies unless they're Pixar.
0: The only exception. Um,
1: And then even when they're Pixar, I'm like just getting the cream off the top of them. Mm. But I did enjoy it. Like I think it is good for a kids movie. And I did enjoy the fact that it is not in the Pixar style. Like it's 2D for the most part. Yeah. So that is like one of the really
0: good selling points of this film, which is that it relies on the kind of the old school animation style which is in this particular case it looks very much like a hand-drawn like sketchbook painting kind of feeling everything is like constantly in motion and flowing and um, very sort of vibrant and like a like a fairy tale storybook. And I also wanted to reference a review written by your Turkish uncle, as you say, uh, yes. Bilge <laughs> so he for Vulture. He's the critic of the week for us. Yeah, I guess so, funnily <laughs> enough. Um, so he touched on this for Vulture when he said, there is no shiny metallic sense of perfection or God forbid realism to the imagery in this beautiful fable. Um, so that's kind of like referencing the way animation currently works, which is very much you know, 3D kind of shiny and glossy and tight, sometimes stylized, sometimes realistic, but all very much, you know, a far cry from the traditional kind of 2D cell animation of the past, which I personally find just much more beautiful, honestly. Um, yeah. But I know it's, it's a lot more labor intensive. So that explains why studios have primarily moved to the sort of 3D computer animation by now.
1: Yeah. In terms of that, I really appreciated it. As well, because it, there's just like a sense of, I guess, overstimulation that happens. Like if I was to have a kid, I'd, I'd love for them to just watch mainly 2D, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's because like, I don't know, there's, you're a kid, like you don't need everything to be in 3D all the time. Everything looks fucking huger than it actually is and more astounding than it actually is at that age anyway. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the storybook elements, I definitely got that, especially because there's so much symmetry in the mm-hmm. in the in the animation or in, in the way that the cartoon is uh, which was very pleasing and i know that like it definitely pulled from a lot of the like i guess uh, would you call 1650 medieval it gave me medieval vibes
0: yeah the filmmakers i think they they said in an interview that they were inspired by you know the these old sort of folk tales and 17th century woodcuts so like medieval woodcuts so it's very much along that vein yeah, animation, like the great thing. And I think the main reason why one might pick animation instead of, you know, having an actual live action sort of film is it's, it's great for fantasy, for magic, for capturing the way things feel and look in your imagination and just making them larger than life. Um, and really unique in a way that, you know, live action or even in my opinion, like the, the sort of 3D computer animated stuff can't really fully capture the scale of. So this is a good example of, I think, what it can do in the hands of, like, very skilled animators.
1: Yeah, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the themes because, obviously, it's kind of suggested pretty early on in the film. But as the film goes on, it does unravel a little bit of the, I guess, the antagonist themes how do you feel about them and do you want to talk about them because that's the thing that interested me the most especially as a children's film i found it quite interesting that they tackled religion of all yeah. things yeah so
0: there there are like quite a few themes in here which are like handled i think in the way that you would expect from a children's theme where like a children's movie where they're not handled the most nuance or anything but you know it's great for what it is and it's admirable that they do have these themes at all so there's a lot of stuff about you know man versus nature environmentalism in that way like people who watch us might be familiar with the studio ghibli film princess mononoke which narratively and thematically is is very similar yeah and then there are things here like the added layer of like british colonialism and like the english colonizing and ruling over Ireland sort of by force, uh, which is particular to this context, as well as, like, you mentioned religion, like, Christianity versus paganism, and, like, these older traditions and rituals. A lot of that is to the antagonist, Oliver Cromwell, who is, like, a real historical figure, and he's just, like, a a God-fearing authoritarian.
1: Did a lot of Oliver Cromwell studying at school, to be honest. A little bit too much, probably. Really? Was this uh, true to true to form for him, I couldn't guess. I couldn't tell you, babes. I can't remember shit. I just <laughs> okay. know that he was, like, feared and religious and wanted, like, order upon his land or whatever that he was doing. So in the, in terms of that, then, yeah, yeah, he d- it was exactly that.
0: Yeah. Did any of these themes sort of speak out to you the most or the ones that you were most interested in, in watching?
1: I think, for me, the lessons that you could take away from this – like if you're a parent showing this to your kid, were you know what is an animal? Why are people scared of them? Why do people feel the need to control them or get rid of them? You know who who is deciding these things and why do they think that they're right? And what's the actual reality? I think like these are the questions that it was trying to kind of prod. And in that sense, I think it's good. Like you know you can turn around and just be like you know a lot of people say that these pe- types of people are bad, but actually what's happening is that they have their own vested interests and obviously don't say that to your kids and. This is why I'm never going to be a mother. Don't use but, the word um, vested. <laughs> vested interests. <laughs> Come, child, my four-year-old. Let me explain to you what vested interest is. <laughs> but, no, but no, I mean, uh, I thought that was really cool. I think they handled that really well. But I was actually pretty taken aback by Oliver Cromwell being depicted as like so religious and like kind of talking about God and prayer, especially in. When he's committing acts of violence, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty, I was taken aback by how heavy-handed I w- it was. Like if I was, pretty bossy. you know, if I was Christian, I'd be a little bit like, oh, uh, yeah, I like, don't know if my kids should be watching this because, like, if that's not the way you want to raise your kids, then this isn't that. Yeah, like the god, the god-fearing man is portrayed as like this
0: like, authoritarian bigot who would rather, you know, burn down a forest because he says it's, like, full Satan than to do anything reasonable.
1: Yeah. It's just interesting in that if you were to explain the historical context for this, it would make sense because Christianity has long been used as a weapon of war, you know? Yeah. And, like, a colonizing force. And a weapon yeah. of colonialism. And it still continues to be a weapon of colonialism now. And it's so embedded in, like, ethnostate terrorism so it's just like i think yeah i think it would be a good conversation starter if your kid is like
0: mommy can you teach me about how england colonized?" yeah
1: yeah yeah (laughs) mommy can you tell me why like christianity is bad and then you can be like well child let me start with the vatican Um, but it
0: does you know (laughs) for a, a children's movie it does like you know raise these more complex ideas that it's like a bold choice it's a little bit surprising and it's it's admirable it's bo-
1: yeah it's I like bold. That about it's it. bo- yeah. it's definitely bold yeah I think it's great for any Irish kids that want to watch it. I think it's a fantastic form of, you know, an example of their heritage, especially with regards to paganism. I think so much of it has been buried away. Yeah, it's bold. It's exactly like you said. Um, I agree.
0: In terms of other things, there were aspects that I really didn't like. I'm going to call out some of the voice acting, particularly that of the protagonist, Robin,
1: who's voiced by an Irish... What is it? English? Mm, Like North of England accent. Because I was going to ask you, did you find the voice acting annoying or did you find the accent annoying
0: oh i don't know
1: i think it maybe was the voice acting because it,
0: at least mm. until you let me know otherwise so much of it where you know the emotion like the emoting is like not really hitting it for me like when she had instances of being like mm. no or like father no and stuff like that yeah. and it sounded so yeah flat like someone's like saying it next to you in your ear versus actually yelling out in emotion yeah
1: yeah hey voice acting is very underrated like if you you have to do it well it's very very important but what can you tell me about yeah the the
0: accent or like how that sort of came into play
1: well the accents it's just they're from you know they're from <laughs> england from a farm and country and she just wants to go back to england with her dad no it's fine it's it's just um i know that a lot of people find that type of accent a little bit annoying that's why i asked it was one, maybe one of the first times i think i've heard it in a, in a film yeah I, on the other hand i will say that the girl that played mave the other girl was great oh yeah uh, obviously i'm not irish but i find that like especially a kid talking in an irish accent so endearing so it was really cute to listen to her just being like help me i have to get me mammy!" like it's so cute (laughs) that was very cute and her character was i mean the character design
0: and then just her her overall story and the way she was written fantastic um that was probably one of the highlights i also had some like frustration with some of the actual storytelling narratively some things don't make sense which is you know all these movies if they made sense the way that we want them to make sense in a perfect world like half these movies the stories they just like wouldn't happen because they would just come yeah but stuff like you know why doesn't this character just go free this other character when they're in the same literal geographic location or stuff like that i like yelled at my tv in frustration a couple times because i was like yeah why are you mopping right now yeah like you dumb fuck like stop I was <laughs> like, then I had to calm down and be like, stop yelling at this animated child on my TV screen. It's, yeah, it's an animated baby. Like- yeah. <laughs> but I can, for like a, you know, a children's movie, presumably made for people not our age, probably. Yeah. I think it's like a one. It's a beautiful, just like visually lush and, and moving piece of cinema. And then, um, as a story, it's, you know, it has some, some complexity, some nuance. And, you know, narratively, it's very easy for, for children to understand. So yeah. Overall, I think it, do you think it has a chance in like the, the sort of Oscar race? I haven't seen Soul, so I, I don't
1: really know how to compare the two. Uh, well, they're probably going to give it to Soul if there's yeah. any award to give. I personally like Soul a lot more than this one, but. I don't know. I haven't seen any of the other like kind of animation contenders. I've only ever seen I've only seen Soul and this, um, but it's good. Like I think it will probably be in the nominations mm-hmm. this week for
0: Culture Notes. As Helen mentioned, we are circling back to Carrie Mulligan. She is in the news again for non you know kind of related reasons to her acting, but also it's it's a little bit messy. So. <laughs> It's, it's essentially Carrie Mulligan versus a freelance critic who wrote a review for Variety about Promising Young Woman, which we talked about in a previous episode. Um, we, we both liked it, generally consensus. So this review was written by Dennis Harvey, who is, I think, a, a long standing sort of freelance critic in, you know, West Coast or, uh, entertainment media. Um, he wrote a review for Variety on the movie. Um, he essentially, you know, questioned a little bit Carrie Mulligan's role in promising young women is like, You know, you maybe could have imagined this femme fatale played by someone else like Margot Robbie, who is the producer in this film, essentially asking, you know, was Mulligan the best fit for this role? You know, the way Mm. that the character dresses and the way her hair sort of lies and her even her accent, it all seems a little bit like like an artifice or performance, which Mm. it kind of was in the film. I think that's the point. But this otherwise very normal routine, um, and generally positive review of the film, it got attention because Carrie Mulligan herself called it out twice in like public national media. She took it personally. She took it personally. So she, she raised the issue with the New York Times in like a piece of the Times. And then again, recently in a variety interview, like actor and actor interview with Zendaya so essentially she was like why is this why did this critic objectify me you know aren't we Mm -hmm. past the point where you need to talk about whether a woman actor is like hot enough for the role or whatever yeah a quote from the times profile she was like it felt like it was basically saying that i wasn't hot enough to pull off this kind of ruse so and then Mm -hmm. it sort of spun out because then variety was forced to respond well they weren't forced to they willingly did it themselves. They apologized for this review and they appended like a correction apology at the top of it where they oh said, man. you know, we apologize to Carrie Mulligan and we regret this insensitive language and insinuation
1: oh in her, God. our review
0: that minimized her daring performance. So they basically threw this freelancer under the bus because they, you know, wanted to make nice with a, you know, currently kind of buzzy and a list actress who is mad at them
1: well they have to because they have to keep those like round tables stocked
0: yeah this is i mean this is a thing There, there are multiple like issues with this the one that kind of rises top of mind for me is just like the a further illustration of all of these these magazines and publications how important access is to them yes and unfortunately the erosion of how they regard like critics and criticism and we're talking here about like the concept of um and the genre of criticism itself not even like mm-hmm. negative criticism which again this isn't really it's not
1: that negative it's not even negative no. it's he did not he is not saying that she's not hot enough he's saying no. that Carrie Mulligan is a tender-faced queen <laughs> <laughs> that that is has now been typecast as being this, like... She plays intelligent characters, you know, and and so with that comes the ennui behind the eyes and the soft gaze and whatever, but, like, she's not a fucking sex siren, right? So she is beautiful. Like, Harry Mulligan is stunning in her own way. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. it was a typecast problem. Like, this is not the character. Like, he didn't think that that's what the character called for. On the other hand, if I'm an attractive actress... That is has a fragile ego. I'm going to feel a way if someone's like, she's not a femme fatale. For what it's worth, I'm not going to then bring it up in interviews, but I will feel a way about it. And I think that's the problem is like, should have kept this in therapy, babes. Like, that's just kind of where I'm at with it. I mean, she got what she wanted,
0: I guess, which was
1: an apology. apology. And now she gets to, it started
0: a little bit of a mini news cycle in which, you know, some people are like, this is a win for feminism and take that, you know, sort of a sexist, White male critic, you know, circle jerk, which that is like a problem with a lot of employed critics and in this circle, but it's not really this particular case. And, you know, do the you think, yeah, go ahead. Do you think she would have felt away about this
1: if this critic was a woman?
0: I think it wouldn't have nearly like the optics wouldn't have worked out for her to be able to say at least half yeah. of like her point. Yeah. But yeah. because this is a dude, he is a white dude. But he, as he pointed out in a response to The Guardian, he says, I'm a six year old gay man. I don't, he's, <laughs> let me said, quote unquote, I'm a six year old gay man. I don't actually go around dwelling on the comparative hotness of young actresses, let alone writing about that. So I feel bad. For, I mean, I don't know, you know, this, this writer personally or even that familiar with him professionally, but
1: I, I just, I think everyone's a little bit touchy about it, especially with regards to this film. This is a feminist film with a capital F, you know? Yeah. And I think like anytime there's any smell of misogyny, it's just like everyone's just ready to fucking pounce. And this is this is like an example of that where it where I think Carrie Mulligan just pulled in a little bit too much meaning behind what was actually happening. Obviously, like it's every actor's nightmare to be like typecast into something that they don't necessarily want to be typecast in. And I get that. But at the same time I think it's wrong of varieties to then apologize for it. Yeah. Um which again like, like you said is an ongoing issue. I mean that's forever. its
0: selling point. It's an industry yeah, it's, it's an industry access. publication. It has yeah, ultimate access. Sure. Um it also reminded me of recently there was maybe of a mini controversy. Um Rachel I think Rachel Handler for Vulture she got in trouble with her Nancy Myers sort of appreciation week, right, with right. um the daughter of Nancy Myers, who is a ostensibly a director herself who directed a film that was mentioned in one of um, Rachel Handler's like taxonomy of Nancy Myers tropes or whatever. Um, very much meant as a tribute but you know the daughter kind of got upset and was like you're demeaning my mother and like women by doing this kind of thing again kind of like did you read this moment or like did you think through this very hard um yeah. moment it's wild the imagining of like power differentials between mm-hmm. these different parties like actor and critic director and critic that you know the people on the hollywood side i think they imagine that they have much less power than they do versus yeah freelancers who are being paid like 200 dollars a review at most right and now that, you know, they think they have these avenues where they're, I don't know, they get to quote unquote clap back or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. and the problem is that publications like variety, which again, it's not a huge surprise with variety, but they're, they're basically rolling over and taking it. They're like, yeah. yes, I'm so sorry. Let me apologize and just like I- describe at length what a scumbag our freelance critic was. Please keep appearing in our actor on actor interviews. Which is yeah. another kind of funny illustration of the point, like the fact that the second complaint surfaced in an actor-on-actor thing, which is yeah. also becoming a kind of more prevalent mode of interviewing and profiling celebrities nowadays, so they don't have to deal with, you know, other actual, like, critics or journalists or things like that. I don't know. It's just, like, yeah. the power dynamic is so skewed already. I can only imagine that it is actually... It's always something in the back of your mind, you know, whenever you're going to write something negative or say something negative about a huge stars uh, work or anything like that, just like how will they react? How much yeah. is this going to ruin my life and is it worth it for something that if you're freelance, which um actually most critics like are freelance. Yeah. How much is it going to like cost me my income and is it worth it for this 200-300
1: dollar review? For for a site that's just trying to push out as much content as it possibly can and doesn't give a fuck about me. Yeah. And then throws me under the bus. Yeah. When, when so, the, you know, they're worried about the access they get from the stuff. Right. Yeah. So not a healthy ecosystem. No, certainly not. All right. So that's what we've been watching this week. So if you are watching anything that you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or just at us. DM us at criticismisdead, or one word, on Twitter and Instagram. For extended show notes, including links to everything we've been talking about, plus some bonus shit, subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review us on Apple Podcasts, and maybe tell a friend about us. Rest in peace, Sophie. See you next week. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny Chi Zhang. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.